0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. There seems to be a theme that has cropped up in, I don't know, recent weeks or months about the importance and centrality of the Word of God and its correcting power in the lives of people. You know, some people encounter the Bible... And they kind of want to go through it with scissors and figure out, I'm just going to take some pieces that I like, construct my own paper mache religion out of the pieces that I have remaining in my Bible after I've removed the things that I don't like. But there are those who come to the Word of God and receive it as the Word of God and have to confront everything there, right? And they find themselves in this example, a life of homosexuality. And they say, I'm, I believe this is the Word of God. I'm going to read what the Word says, And I'm going to have to conform my life to what I find in God's Word, not form some new religion in the shape of my sinful practice, right? So the Word of God can have that type of shaping testimony on us. And it's important that we spend time with it. I've often said you make progress on the things you commit time to. If you were going to progress in terms of your physical strength and you did nothing. You said, well, I'm not gonna go to the gym, I'm not gonna try to do this many reps or lift these sorts of weights, or I'm not gonna try to do this amount of work out in the field or whatever. You just did nothing, you committed no time to it, and you had this abstract idea that I'm gonna become a stronger person. There's not a single one of us that would look at that and say, you've got any real prospect of making any progress there. You're not committing any time to it. It's just some lofty idea that you'd like to have, and you're not committing any time to it. On the way to church today, Andrew said something about, I'd kind of like to learn to start playing the piano. And then Catherine said, Well, Lauren said she'd kind of like to start and learn to play the piano too. You know, well, that's a good desire. That's an interesting thing to want to do. It's fun. Music is wonderful. It's one of the most delightful things you can get involved with, is playing music. But I can guarantee you that if you don't commit time, To tickling the ivories, you're not going to make any progress at becoming a piano player. It's the same with just about any instrument out there. You have got to commit time to it. And we know that in all the normal things that we would want to pursue just in our regular day-to-day lives. We know that's true. And yet, when it comes to spiritual matters, how often people are deceived into thinking they're going to make some sort of spiritual progress without committing any time to studying the text that God wrote to instruct us and to equip us in this life. We should have the same reaction to people talking about spiritual progress apart from the Word of God that we have of people saying, I'm going to become a uh, professional athlete, but I'm not going to spend any time in the gym. I'm not going to spend any time going to football practice and all the things you would have to do to do that. It's ridiculous, but somehow in religion, We forget these things, and we we try to make it something other than that. The Word of God is really central, and I appreciate that testimony there. I'm going to try to finish up 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, and I think there's some themes in that that kind of relate to some of the things that Brother Randy set before us. I'm going to start in Psalm 37, however, because I've hit this a few times in in recent years, and my mind keeps coming back to it, so I don't think I've gotten everything out of it that I wanted to get. I've said that Psalm 37 is the hard shall Psalms. It's got 35 shalls in it. So if you're a hard shall, you ought to be believing this verse as much as anything in the Bible and laying hold of the promises that are set forth there. My topic today is really on contentment. How do you achieve contentment? If you are in an ignorant state, The world is going to offer up all sorts of ways for you to become content. It's going to offer this up as a, this is how you get content in this world. This is how you'll finally be satisfied with your life. The example of homosexuality was brought up. This is offered as a solution to someone's problem if they have a particular proclivity. And this man to whom Randy was attesting, he didn't find contentment there though the world is offering up, that if that's where you go with this, you'll find contentment. You'll be who you really are, and, and you'll be happy finally. But this person was disturbed and didn't find contentment there and submitted to what he found in the Word of God and found this disconnect and then said, i, I got to move away from this because there's no contentment there. Psalm 37 says this, "...fret not thyselves because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed." That sounds like contentment, right? That's a pretty good example of do what God says to do. And that's where you'll find contentment. It's not rebel against God and follow off in some sinful practice and find a community of people who will affirm you in a sinful practice and there you'll find contentment. It is trust in the Lord and do good. That's where the contentment is found. Verse four, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I think what's lurking in that that doesn't really pop out at you. Sometimes you think, well, I've got... The desires of my heart, you know, maybe not all the desires of my heart are something that God would want me to do. I might have some sinful desires, right? He's saying God's going to give you the desires of my heart. I think this is saying as you draw closer to God, the desires of your heart begin to change. You start to become more familiar with the fact that many of my desires are not good, And you start setting those things aside and your desires become more conformed to the image of Christ. And then in that sense, you're more in tune with God's will for your life and God begins to give you those desires of your heart because those desires of the heart become righteous desires and not the carnal and frivolous desires that we might otherwise have. "...commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass, and He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil." Don't be upset about this. You know, God has a way that he wants you to go. Don't fight it. Don't envy the wicked because they, it seems like they're out there getting ahead. Or, well, there's this community of people who would affirm me in my sin. So I'm going to go over there and, and just be affirmed. And that'll make me feel better. That's not the way you should go. Don't be angry. Don't be angry at God because he's telling you the right thing to do. As a child, can you remember any instance in your life where a parent told you something to do and it was the right thing to do and it was something that was good for you and you got mad about it? There's not a single one of us that can't think of some instance like that. Go do your homework. Quit playing around on, you know, whatever you're doing and go over there and finish your homework. You're going to need to know some stuff when you get out in the world someday. This is good for you. Oh, man, I want to do that right now. I don't want to do that. I want to go play with my friends. No, go do this thing that's going to be good for you in the long term. Well, God's people can be that way when they're confronted by the truths that are set before them by their heavenly father as well, just as they do with their earthly parents. You can look at something that's evidently there, something like, You need to be much more familiar with the Word of God. You ought to be in the assembly. You ought to be under instruction on a regular basis. You ought to be soaking that in and making spiritual progress as you become more familiar with the Word of God. All those things are wonderful, and yet we can push back against them. And it's kind of a natural inclination of the carnal heart. But this calls us to cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't be upset about those things. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil." Focus on doing what God would have you to do. It's going to go well for you. It's ultimately going to go well for you. You can resist and push against these things, but you will not find contentment when you do that. And we'll see what Paul says about contentment here in First Timothy chapter 6 as we get a little further. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. Everyone, almost everyone, unless you're independently wealthy, you're going to have to have some kind of a job. You're going to have to be in service to someone. Bob Dylan wrote a song years ago that says, you're going to have to serve somebody. And there's a lot of truth in that, irrespective of whatever else I might be able to say about Bob Dylan's theology. You're going to have to serve somebody. That song says, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And this is talking about an earthly service. You know, we need to be good servants, not just in the Lord's house. Obviously, you need to be a good servant in the Lord's house and in the kingdom of God, but also in our secular jobs, irrespective of what you make of your boss. If you're under his rule, so to speak, and you're in their service, you need to try to be a good employee and not be someone who's talking bad about them behind their back and creating problems at work and all those sorts of things. You need to have a good testimony. You want it to be said that, you know, we know our boss is, is uh, not the greatest guy on earth. Usually if you have a terrible boss, and this is not some unique knowledge that you have. Like if you were to mention in the lunchroom, you know, our boss is really terrible. people would, What? What are you talking about? I mean, usually if your boss is terrible, like everybody knows it, right? So you don't have to really publish that or rehearse it. And if you've worked long enough, you've probably had some bad bosses over the years. And if you've been in a few lunchrooms, you have noticed that people talk bad about the boss a lot of times. That's kind of how it plays out. What would make you stand out from the pack and all that is for you to say, you know, I'm just not going to engage in that. Kind of is what it is. I'm gonna to try to do a good job, do them the honor that they deserve based on their position, and try not to enter into that. That would make you notable among other people. Might make you, might make others a little bit mad at you, by the way, because they, people tend to want to have a little bit of a fraternity of dragging other people down. You know, they want to get you to join in. Then you're just one of them, and it kind of becomes a, a self-perpetuating thing once you enter into it, but. You can distinguish yourself by saying, you know, I'm going to stay focused on doing a good job, serving as I ought, not running this person down. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. So if you've got a situation where you even have a Christian boss you shouldn't use that to make the matter any different. You shouldn't say, well, he's a, he's a Christian brother. He should treat me easier or he should go easy on me because we both go to the same church. So he should give me the easier work to do and pay me a little more than the other people. Don't think about it that way. Think about it as you're doing your services, doing it to the Lord is kind of how we're supposed to be thinking about it. Now, starting in verse 3, he turns his attention to the matter of wealth. And this is—we've uh, spent a lot of time in recent weeks speaking about the sin of covetousness, and I think this is a sin that is so prevalent in American society that we're not that sensitive to it. If you mention the gross sins of the flesh, fornication, drunkenness, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, everybody's like, "Oh yeah, those are those are really bad, right?" I don't—we shouldn't be involved in that. But when you start talking about covetousness, It's so subtle or it's so prevalent that it becomes subtle to us. We don't think about it uh, the way we ought to. But the Bible speaks so much about the problems that accompany wealth and affluence and covetousness. Right. So we should take notice of this. And he begins to talk about it here in verse three. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmising. There's people who are going to push back against the things that are going to be taught here. And you need to note that because it's an evidence of proudness and a lack of knowledge if you're pushing back against these things. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. You see, there's a juxtaposition in that text between gain, which is really like material gain, and godliness. And Paul's really saying these things, they're not the same thing. And I'm telling you that men can get that twisted. They can get it very confused. You can begin to measure a church's success in the same way that you would measure a corporation's success. How much money are they bringing in? What is the size of the building? Are they growing? You know, our entire economy is really based on growth more than anything else. A company that is just out there doing work in a sector of the economy where, okay, we're going to do this work, and if we pay all the bills, we're going to make 10% over and above all of our expenses and everything, and you're doing that year after year after year. Those are not the companies that have big stock prices out there, even if they're producing a consistent profit like that every year. Because much of the speculation in the stock market is based on growth, there are companies who will say, well, we do that sort of business, but then when they speak in the marketplace, they try to talk about themselves in a way that makes them look like they're a different sort of business that has more upside potential into the future. That makes their stock price go up because they say, oh, if you're not that sort of business, you have a potential, you could become twice the size of the company you are today in three or five years and that could make the stock go exponentially up. It's tremendously based on growth, and churches end up being run in very much the same way. As you see progress, people get interested in it, and you know we're going to build more buildings, and we're going to acquire more properties. You've seen many churches now adopt a corporate satellite structure, right? It's not enough. Many churches have realized there's only so big that you can grow a particular single location church in a particular community. It's only going to get so big. So what do you do to overcome that? Well, it's kind of like this. You could build the biggest McDonald's in the world in Little Rock But it's only going to draw so many people there, right? It's only so many people are going to come. So what do you do once you've maxed out the size of a McDonald's restaurant in Little Rock? You franchise it. Well, the problem is, as you go in concentric circles around that, there's fewer and fewer people who are willing to drive that distance to go to that restaurant, no matter how big and grand and wonderful it is. And it plays out at some point. So you've got to franchise it. Well, we need to put a McDonald's in every neighborhood is how we do it. And this is exactly what churches have started to do. It's not enough for us to have one megachurch in one location. We need to put one in every neighborhood that's connected to this one church. It is a corporate franchise model. It draws attention because it shows growth. It gets people excited. It shows upside and all this sort of thing. And Paul warns us that this idea, supposing that gain is godliness, is very problematic. It's very troublesome. People are attracted to it. I think you need to be aware. People want to be involved in something that's going on and is new and it seems like it's active and there's some, there's some activity going on there. And two of the main ways you do that is you show growth and either numerically or financially or in terms of the properties that you have. And you do this through a franchise model. And by the way, the second component of that is let's downplay doctrine because doctrine just gets everybody arguing with each other. We don't want people arguing over the atonement or trying to figure out. Let's just get in there and have an experience and let's franchise it make it easy to access, drive through windows in every neighborhood. And that's going to drive the enthusiasm behind that. But it's very different from the Lord's New Testament church. It's very different from the kingdom of God and instruction in doctrine. The entire last chapter we focused a lot on, and there's much in this this epistle, that's about the centrality and importance of doctrine. And if you're preaching doctrine and you're preaching the truth, It's going to exclude some people. That's of their own choosing, by the way. We have to uphold the truth. The moment we step away from the truth and the doctrines of the church, we're just not even a church anymore, right? So it's very important that we maintain these things. Brother Kevin said last night, you know, doctrine divides. It just does can bring a lot more people into an assembly if you're not pressing any doctrine but the moment you start pressing it out you could bring a huge number of people if you just said we're just going to get in a building and we're all going to worship god no telling how many people you could get in here from the world okay worshiping god that sounds good now let's introduce one doctrine Jesus Christ is the virgin born son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. You just lost a whole bunch of people from that worship God assembly who don't want any part of it. You lost a lot of them from a whole bunch of world religions who are perfectly willing to just worship God. Right. Now, as you begin adding the doctrines that are listed in this book, you're going to be seeing people take the exits in that assembly. That's just how it is. So it's important that we not downgrade the matter of doctrine. It's important that we look at this from a matter of not thinking of gain as being equivalent with godliness. They are not the same thing. Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The idea of being content is really, it's an antonym to covetous. If you're covetous, you want something, particularly something that someone else has. Their possessions, their status, their family, those sorts of things. But a man who is content is really the opposite of that. I'm fine with what God has provided for me, and I'm thankful for it. God has given me this. That is my lot. I'm thankful for it. I don't have to be covetous of what other people have godliness with contentment is great gain you want to talk about gain they're talking about gain is godliness well there is a gain you can have and paul's setting that at odds with this sort of carnal gain that's out there in the marketplace of ideas he's saying this combination of godliness with contentment that's gain that's where you've really gained something spiritually when you begin to realize what i have in god is great gain And I'm satisfied with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where we find our gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Now, I said a few weeks ago in a similar reference, I said, you know, the Bible does not say you can't take it with you. But that's about as close as it comes, I would say. Pretty close. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We're not here for all that long. And if we're really only thinking about things in the here and now and the carnal gains and the financial gains that we could have in this world, we are being very short-sighted. And to the extent that you do that, you're not going to embrace the sort of godliness and contentment that Paul is encouraging us toward here. Now look at this. He starts (laughs) as if that's not uh, enough, speaking on money which is where lots of people get sensitive. Verse 8, And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Do you have a lack of contentment in your life today? Are you someone who has nothing but food and clothing? Or do you have a whole lot more than that? I didn't see any of you walk to church. You've got cars, you've got homes... You've got families and friends and all sorts of stuff. We've all got so much stuff, it's just absolutely ridiculous. You're in the 1% of humanity throughout the course of human existence. And what we regard as normal, honestly, what we regard as poor is way beyond what Paul's talking about here. I just got something to eat and some clothes. And we ought to be content with that. What this should do is stir up in us a notion of shame about how we lack contentment, how we valued the things of this world to a much greater degree than we ought, and how little it should take to satisfy someone who is really spiritually mature in such things. Well, we probably all wish he'd stop talking about it there, but he keeps going. So we got to keep going. I'm reminded of what was said back in chapter 4 and verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. You have to cover these uncomfortable and unpleasant truths that kind of kind of press into your life a little bit in order to be a good minister of the gospel. By the way, that doesn't incline towards attendance There's people who would come to such a meeting and have a minister read just simply what Paul says and they would say, I don't really like that. I don't like hearing that. You know why that is? Because doctrine divides. The more of the truth of the Word of God you start pressing upon people, the more apt you're likely to hit a landmine where they say, well, I don't want that one at all and I don't want anything to do with it. But it's in the Word of God we have to cover it and we have to look at it and There is a shaping testimony here that can improve your life. It may not improve your countenance to hear it at this very moment. You might go, I don't really like that. I don't like it. It Kind of makes me uncomfortable. I wish that minister wouldn't have said that. But I'm telling you, it's the Word of God, and it is written for our learning. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. These people erred from the faith. You see, this is not, well, the carnal world's out there running after material things and they're they're just falling off. They're in all kinds of trouble. These are people who erred from the faith. These are people in the body of faith who got wrapped up in material things and it just totally wrecked their lives. This is a warning to us and it's about money. You just don't hear money talked about that way very commonly in society. It's almost always regarded as you get money and it's going to make everything better. Now we all got bills to pay and I get it. I think this way too, so don't feel like I'm, I'm laying it all on you and I got it all figured out. I've been raised in this same carnal, covetous society that you have, so I'm just calling it out and trying to invite us into thinking about it more and giving it due consideration. The love of money is the root of all evil. They that be rich fall into temptation and a snare. That's generally not the first thing that comes out of people's mouths when you say, Well, this person's rich, they're in a real snare. No, it's usually, they're rich, man. They got it made. They just got it made. They don't have any trouble. They got all the money they need. Very rare that you hear someone say, man, that guy, he got out there, he made a lot of money. Really built an enormous snare for himself. (laughs) He was out there inviting all manner of carnal temptations into his life. But you know what? If you go out and you look at interviews... It's very interesting. I've spent time on the Internet in recent weeks listening to long form interviews with people. And if you look at people who were kind of has been celebrities, people who were famous 20 years ago or 30 years ago and then they kind of fell off and then you let them talk about their lives. Many of these people will attest to this very thing like. I got rich, I had it all, everybody loved me. I'm on the cover of famous magazines and I'm on the late night talk shows and everybody loves me and thinks I'm great. And my life was just a total wreck. I got access to all this money and I'm spending it on drugs and women and booze and blowing it left and right. It was just a total wreck. It's very evidently true that money causes a whole lot of problems, And it can be a snare. It talks about being into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. I'm telling you right now, if you became a multimillionaire, if you wanted to scratch off or whatever one of those things are, you get the big multimillion dollar payout. I'm telling you right now that there are lusts and desires that would come into your life that you're not even aware of right now. You don't even know they exist there's so many different things you can get into. And every one of them is like this almost limitless pursuit. I remember years ago when I first started working, I thought uh, I was around people and uh, I made a little money, got a bonus for something. And I thought, well, I need to I need to get a nice watch because I saw these people around me in the professional world. And they had done things and they, oh, this guy's got a really nice watch. And I bought a little bit more, I bought a $200 watch or something. It was pretty expensive for me. Well, these guys are wearing, and you start realizing you can go as far out on the watch limb as you can. You can't even imagine. I mean, here I am a kid, all I've ever had is a Timex. And I'm thinking, I'm going to buy this $200 watch. It's going to be, well, that's pretty nice. And then you start realizing, you start talking to people and they're like, well, my watch was $5,000. You're like, What? five thousand dollars for a watch he's like yeah it's just an entry level rolex (laughs) oh it's the entry level yeah my buddy's got a you know he's got a submariner it was thirty thousand dollars and these are still in the low end of the watch game i mean you could spend a million dollars on a watch if you want to There are worlds of covetousness and lust that you're not even aware of because it's never even been anywhere near the realm of possibility you're going to spend money on. I've never bought a boat that you didn't have to paddle. Okay, that's that's like the level of boating I've gotten into. I may have had a trolling motor on something. But you get into boats and there's no end to it. It could open if you had millions and millions of dollars. You might have a really nice boat. And then all of a sudden you get millions of dollars. You're like, that boat is just ain't worth a hoot anymore. I bought it secondhand, and it, it only hold about 10 people. I need a boat that holds 20 people. There's no end to it. And almost any topic you can pick. It could be golf clubs. It could be guitars. It could be cars. It, it's just no end to it. And as you get access to money, all of a sudden your tastes in these things goes way up. And now you're spending insane amounts of money on a bunch of stuff that just a brief time before you didn't even know existed. You are now lusting for things and covetous of things that you previously had no access to. And it's just literally no end to it. Money can pierce you through with many sorrows. That's just generally not the way we think about money. But it's something we should consider. And it's something we should all step back and be like, let me look at what I've actually got, what the Lord has provided for me thus far. Let me just stop and be thankful. It's so much more than just food and raiment. It's more than just something to eat, something to put on my back. It's way more than that. I should be so thankful for that. And when I look across the great span of humanity over the course of history, I've lived a materially much more abundant life than the vast majority of humanity, most of which were completely and utterly impoverished. Paul goes on to say, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. (laughs) Flee these things. A lot of these podcasts that are out there that I've looked at, a lot of podcasts are out there and they're trying to teach people this is how you get rich. Follow these eight tips and you're going to be... You're going to make all this money, you're going to get rich. And I think people should try to do the best they can in the businesses they have. I don't have any problem with people acquiring wealth. Some people do, others don't. I'm just trying to point out that it's a snare and it creates problems. In our society, we just generally don't say money creates problems, but it does. More money, more problems. That's what the rap song says, right? I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. The more money you got, the more problems you got. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. God's people ought to be laying hold on eternal life. And the way I think about that is this. You're going to have 70, 80, some of us 90, maybe 100 years on this earth. It's not that long a period of time. And whatever material things you have, we've already covered verses said you can't take it with you. We really ought to be focused on eternal things. And instead of focusing on the inheritance we have in this world and what is my empire and what things have I acquired and all those sorts of things, we really ought to spend time thinking about the fact that we are joint heirs with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And before too much longer, whether you have built your estate 10% more or 100% more or whatever in the coming years, it's all going to go to nothing and you're going to have it all. Because you're a joint heir with Christ. By the way, that's doctrine. That's doctrine. That's the sort of doctrine that can correct your thinking. You might get resentful like those people in Psalm 37 about how the wicked are doing. But when you think about things in the right perspective, you begin to realize, I am a joint heir with the king. I got to get through this life. The Lord's not going to leave me nor forsake me. I got joy in that. I should be content with such things as I have and be looking forward to what's to come. I'm going to stop there. I had intended to go further than that, but maybe we'll finish up 1 Timothy chapter 6 the next time I stand before you. I appreciate your good attention. I publish an open door to the church. Anyone who'd like to join by a letter of baptism? Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.